Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. My guest this time is Hugh Jackman. Hugh, as many of you know, is an international icon, one of our most compelling actors and performers, both on stage and on screen. From playing Wolverine in the X-Men movies, one of my favorite characters, to portraying P.T. Barnum in The Greatest Showman, and now his upcoming Broadway show, The Music Man. He does it all. But the conversation in this episode is not about Hugh's successful career. It is about his personal journey of growth and transformation. From a childhood heavy with fears to a quest to break that pattern, Hugh has become greatly attuned to a process of perpetual healing and study. His approach to self-improvement is tender and rigorous, open-minded and disciplined. He seeks out experts and reads constantly. He meditates, manifests, and gets the help he needs to grow as a man, as a husband, and as a father. Our conversation reflects on so many of Hugh's learnings about family, love, and God, about connecting nature to happiness, and about realizing what to hold on to, and how to let go. He's a man who truly and refreshingly speaks from his heart. Join us. It's so good seeing you. You too. I'm thrilled to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I got to tell you, because I heard you on uh, Tim Ferriss talking about a manifestation exercise that you do, right? Which is, as I understand it, you write the day, your your expectations of the day or your prediction of Mm. the day in advance Mm. in a note. In present tense. In present tense, exactly. And then you see how it gets manifested. So I hear it and I was like, it's a great exercise. I'm going to do it. And I do it the day before our originally scheduled interview, right? So I write, it's it's a great day. It's fantastic. I have a great conversation with Hugh Jackman. It's going to wonderful. Wow, fantastic. And then half an hour before the interview happens, and you know, I have a huge thunderstorm in here. The electricity gets turned off, it's cut off, and neither myself nor my neighbors have any internet, right? Like I go from one neighbor to the other. Oh. I have an interview, and they're like, no internet in the near vicinity in where I live, right? I live in upstate New York, as you know. So I was like, 
Okay, and thank, first of all, thank you so much for agreeing to reschedule it and being so flexible about no it. Problem. I really appreciate it. But then I would like went to reflect, right? This, you know, the electricity came out a few hours later, came back. And then second half of the day was actually a good day. And like things <laughs> happen. And then I was like, so, okay, what am I not doing right in the manifest <laughs> exercise? What What is the attitude one should have, you know, when things doesn't happen? How do, you know, and I really need to ask the one who showed me, who told me about that, which is you. So can you please tell me? <laughs> Lauren Zander, who taught me this method, um, <laughs> would often pick me up on things that I said, this didn't happen. She goes, read to me what you wrote. And so I would read, she goes, not specific. I said, what do you mean? She said, okay, Zainab, for example, I'm gonna have a great conversation with Zainab. It's gonna be this, it's gonna be that, it's gonna be, I'm gonna learn, she's gonna learn, we're gonna connect. She goes, did you say today? And I said, well, no, it was scheduled for today, but you didn't say, I have a great talk today. <laughs> I was like, you gotta be that specific. She goes, yeah. You're a backgammon player like me, right? <laughs> yeah, I love backgammon. <laughs> when I'm manifesting, I'll go seven. I need a seven. I need a seven. And I'll get a seven. And then I go, oh, I, what I needed was a three, four. I didn't need a six, one. Six, one doesn't help me. So I always remember specific. But the other key thing, which is life, is if it doesn't work out, say it didn't work out. Like be honest. So, so the manifesting at the beginning of the day is bookended by literally a score out of 10. So I'll write down, today is gonna be X, Y, Z. And at the end of the day, I'll look at it and I'll look back and go, wow, that was a four. That was a four. <laughs> and so the way I was taught is if it's anything under like an eight, if your day is anything under an eight, then you need to purge it out. Literally, I'll get my recorder on my phone and I'll just go, Oh, this every thought, this why this didn't happen, and then the thing, and my neighbors weren't there, and my thing, and the thing, and my oh, everything out, and then to start again tomorrow. So it's it's a it's a mixture of specific, and then being accountable. Specific being accountable. Okay. I got it. And I would add to it because this is impacted by the culture I come from. Uh, there's mm. a saying in the, uh, you know, I grew up a Muslim in Iraq and there's a saying in the Quran that, you know, sometimes you hate some things happen to you, but they are ultimately for your best. Now, I don't know how canceling yesterday's interview and the thunder and all of that is good, but I also end up like there's a part of me that trusts, you know, it didn't happen. I'm sure it's for the best, you know, sometimes, sometimes, you Can know. Can I add to that? Yes, I please. totally agree. I'm not sure it was the best for you, but it really worked for me because really? I had arranged it at 11.30 and we had a massive storm here and it turned out my son was having a driving lesson and he was really a bit nervous about it because it was really tough. And he said, I feel really bad, but I'd really love it if you were there. And I said, no problem, I'm there. I'm so, so happy. Thank you. <laughs> so happy to so hear. It, it, it worked out for me, but I, I think I, I, it's that like that Zen master story is a similar one of no matter what happens in your life, if you have a, a more bigger picture view of it all, is that so? So what, what might seem good or bad in the minute could prove to be the opposite tomorrow or a year later, we never know. So I think it, it's really what that, that, saying is about is taking a bigger picture view of it all right that's so true 
It's so true. So Hugh, this this conversation, this podcast actually is called Redefine because it is, I had a redefining moment in my life where I almost died. Mm. And, you know, I really became curious about how people reshape their understanding of life, about the essence Mm. of life in redefining moments in their lives, you know, and how Mm. can we learn from each other to shape our lives in in a new way, in a better way, Mm. in a healthier way, let's say. So, you know, as I look at your life, and I have a few questions. One is, you know, you, you, you had mentioned several times that when you were a child, you had a lot of fear in you. Fear of being alone, fear of not good, being good enough, fear... Heights, the dark. Really? Fear of so many things. Very fearful kid. So how did you change that? And, and what led you to change that? I was at times humiliated and humiliated in front of my friends at school at rock climbing where I cried on the rock face and they laughed about it for the next year and made fun of me. So I had to solve that because I just felt I was literally (laughs) your world, your friends. I was just like, this is a disaster. And so I would make myself go down to the diving board at my school. There was a just a three meter diving board, but I would never have thought of going up. And I jumped off it, off it, off it, off it, off it until it was fine. And then everyone in Australia seemed to be jumping off things, cliffs, things, it was roller coasters. And if you didn't, it was just horrible. So I got through it, but I guess that's a little bit of a insight into me. I think maybe the youngest of five kids, that feeling of you don't want to be left behind. You want to be able to catch up and keep up with the others. So I would force myself to go through the fear. Even when I was at drama school, I'd be fearful every time I got up. I would go first rather than wait because I figured if I waited, I might end up just sort of not getting up or not doing anything. So I would always put my hand up first just to continually confront it. And since then, I've read amazing books by Stephen Pressfield, the, uh, The War of Art, which kind of says that that thing that you're fearful of is in fact your roadmap. That's what you're meant to learn. Not jumping off a cliff, obviously, but you know, with some reason, but that thing you're scared about is exactly where you need to put your energy in. I think that's been my philosophy. I loved Baz Luhrmann. I worked with Baz Luhrmann on the movie Australia and on his letterhead, he has written a life lived in fear is a life half lived. And I really agree with that. I think that fear can, from my personal experience, somehow infect other areas. It starts off as a fear of heights and before you know it, you're scared of the dark and then you're afraid to go to that party and then you're afraid to do the school play and it somehow is cancerous, I feel. So you have to, so that's sort of been my approach with fear. How about you? No, it's very interesting. You know, I grew up with a lot of fear myself. You know, I grew up uh, with a dictator. Mm. uh, And so fear for me was very like a physical almost. You can touch it, you know. Mm. And and then I came to America and there's no need to fear the dictator, but I'm still afraid, right? Like I would Mm. be afraid of uttering Saddam Hussein's word in my backyard, in my own home. It's like, shh, shh, Mm. in case he hears us, you know. Mm. And, and. At one point, I realized I either I'm going to stay in this fear and I'm becoming the prison guard to my own fear, or mm. I take this leap of faith and break away from it. I decided I'm going to take a leap of faith and jump off the cliff. And I don't know if I'm going to land or not, but I rather speak the truth than live in this fear and die in it. And, you know, it works. I totally relate to that. I can totally relate to that. A lot of the fear is of being found out or covering up. I used to have that a lot 
in my acting even, you know, I'd get on a job and I'd be the lead in a big movie, a hundred million dollar movie. And I'm going, hope this is okay. I hope it's all right. I feel a bit weird about this scene. I don't know if I can pull this off, but do not show that on set. Like you're the quarterback. Like you've got to be, give me the ball coach. Give me the ball. Like, and I, so I was, I was hiding. And since then I let go of that. I'll say to a director, like, dude, I just, I feel really weird about this. I'm, I'm really nervous today. And they go, okay, what is it? And I said, I don't know. I know this is an important scene. I'm not 100% sure to play it. And I said that to Jason Reitman on the front runner. And he goes, he goes, I'm so glad he said that. He goes, because I'm really nervous about it too. And he goes, let's just make a pact. We will not leave this scene until we're both really, really happy. And I was like, oh, okay. And he goes, I promise you, I will not move on from this scene unless it's fantastic. I was like, oh. And a lot of the fear went. So... But I have to say to you, I've had a, re, a kind of redefining moment or a defining moment recently in my life. And I'm working with a therapist who I want to name him, but I haven't named him before. I'm not sure if, that, if that's a cool thing to do, if he's all right with that. I don't know how that works. Anyway, so just while I'm, I'll ask him next time I speak. But for now, it's he's been fantastic. And he's made me realize that my attitude to fear that I was explaining to you was too harsh. I was too harsh on myself. There was a lot of, do not feel that stuff. That's weak. Yeah. Come on, get on with it to push yourself. And I would say that was my way of handling it. And he's really encouraging me to get rid of harshness that actually no good comes out of harshness in the end, nothing that there's such a thing as loving firmness like you would with your kid you know you know the kid's got to go to school or they've got to do this or they've got to but it's put your arm around them we're like don't worry i'm here with you it's going to be and you're going to be fine i've felt that too rather than what are you talking about at school every kid goes to school you've got to get there what what's wrong with you every other kid seems to go fine that's how i was treating myself for many many years and i now don't do that and it has made life or anything frightening in my life far easier and more fun more honest it's been just been more joy i think it's been a big realization for me the other way kind of robs you of the joy while you're doing it if it works out which i've been lucky in my case in my career a bunch of things have worked out there's a moment of relief after it but then it's like oh well what's next there's just not the feeling of joy during it as much as there could be. Well, you're making me think of two things. Is One is when we speak our truth, as in you're telling the director, I'm afraid of this, you know. I feel every time I speak my truth, I really, it becomes an invitation for everyone else to speak their truth. Like, oh, right. apparently I'm not the only one who's afraid of this. There are lots of right. people, and then it really becomes an invitation for everyone else to join. And, and that, uh, you know, it doesn't make me feel lonely. It doesn't make them feel lonely, right? Yeah, and it's, yeah. this is the example you said. And the, the second one is, you know, he and I almost like their redefining moment in my life, which is I, I mentioned in, in, in almost life and death, what came to me was did I live my life in kindness to myself? You know, mm -hmm. and, and like I've always lived it in kindness to others, you know, as I'm a humanitarian mm -hmm. and I gave a lot of myself to, I really gave all mm -hmm. of myself to the world, but I really was very harsh on myself. And yet in that transformative moment was, 
did I live in kindness to myself? And this is what you bring out, you know, the, are you, are we living in kindness to ourselves? You know, not only to the world or our, our careers or our family, but into ourselves. Yeah, but you know, when you mentioned that about your fear, I know your story, so it's totally understandable, but I can imagine your parents' fear and your grandparents' fear. And this is something I'm starting to learn a lot about now. I, a lot of those feelings of fear or nervousness, and I, I don't feel this, I'd be mad at myself. And I don't know if it's always mine. So it can be inherited, I think. Absolutely. You grow up with it. You're, it's sort of instilled in you for survival. You're, I'm sure your parents instilled a hypervigilance in you for survival, right? Yeah. yeah. You no longer need that hypervigilance, but that, that dynamic still is going on within you. So I've really learned to just recognize the feelings. Okay, you're nervous. That's okay. This may not actually be my fear at all. Maybe someone else's fear. But it's all right. Just feel it. And there's certainly that little boy that I was telling you about that was always scared is still there. And so rather than berating that little boy for feeling that and pushing him and come on, I just, oh, I'd say, come here. Just put him in my heart. It's okay. Because actually that little boy is probably all, all the gifts I have to offer is all in there too. So I have to make that little boy feel really comfortable about rock climbing or whatever it happens to be. That's you know? so beautiful. Well, let me ask you about rock climbing because you are from Australia and not to generalize the entire Australian population, but I, in my visits to Australia, it's a very outdoorsy uh, culture. It's like there's a lot of mm. uh, connections to nature, you know, more mm. than other cultures, I would say, you know, mm. uh, from water to earth to... How have your connection, how has your connection to nature been and was there transformative moments or redefining moments that mm. impacted your awareness to you know to to nature to the divine to mm. to who you are as a person thanks for reminding me of this uh something just flashed in my head which was a hugely transformative moment for me I was brought up very, very religious. My father was a born again Christian. I was in the church. I started to doubt some of that thinking by the time I was 16 or so. It seemed very narrow. Just these people are going to heaven and no one else is. I was like, that feels weird. So I started to think about it more. And by the way, I, I would say, yes, Australia is probably more outdoorsy. It's probably simply because you've got this massive land space with only 20 million people. So there's a lot of room. You know, I actually grew up in a fairly suburban sort of setting, but it was beach, it was camping, it was outdoors. But when I went, when I was 19, I went to the outback, part of a volunteer group. We were building houses uh, in an indigenous community there. And then I was asked to stay on and run the general store for the guy had never taken a vacation. So I, I, I said, yeah, and I stayed for a month. And over those three months, something happened to me because I, you can't be in the outback of Australia without somehow getting more and more grounded, feeling that humility of, the, of being just such a little speck in this enormous, beautiful spiritual landscape. And it's got a spiritual feeling it, it's humbling as well as comforting. I felt honestly happy. I didn't know you could feel this happy. Uh, everyone left. The group I was with all left. I was on my own 
with the Indigenous community. By the way, I'm in touch with one guy, Peter Wilson, um, Indigenous guy there to this day. And we would just hang out. Like I would work in the general store with everyone and then we would go and watch the sunset and we'd wake up in the morning, we'd swim in the, the water holes. And I just felt so happy to the point where when it was time to go back for my second year of university or college, I wasn't going to go back. I was, I, I was happier, so happy. I cried the entire. I ended up being convinced by my father to go back. I cried the entire way home. Like, I, I think it was for the first time in my life, I'd had long enough in such a beautiful natural environment that I felt the simplicity and beauty of being human. We, we, if, I think we complicated so much with with our family or school life or in college what are you gonna do with yourself there's so much going on in my head I mean like when you pour a glass of water and it's cloudy somehow over this three months that all just settled and it, it was just simple I was just there and in some ways I'm still probably searching for that happiness sense of pure happiness that I had back then that was a huge revelation to me how have your relationship with God or the divine evolved ever since what you mentioned, you know, you know, your upbringing and then where you are now? I experienced that feeling when I was 19. I somehow knew that was divinity, that there was some consciousness that I was tapped into. I then spent a couple of years searching and reading and not really knowing how to put a name or a label to it, but I had it here. And then I went to a place, I, I met a guy I was, I was acting with, that he just had something about him. And I said, dude, there's something about you. And I don't know what it is, but I, I, I need some of that. And he said, well, I go to this place called uh, the philosophy school, um, which I went to and uh, it sort of really changed my life because it's not a, in any way didactic. And it's a place where I learned transcendental meditation, which made my experience, human experience even deeper. I've been doing that for 25 years. That was a huge moment. I was going along and everything that was saying, we were reading everything from Shakespeare to Socrates to the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible, uh, all different texts, a very universalist sort of approach and everything being practical. So it's a school of practical philosophy. So they, they encourage you to try everything out. Don't accept or reject anything intellectually. Just try it in your life and if it works. So it was simple, but I remember thinking at the beginning, oh, this is gonna help me with my acting because acting is all about being in the present moment. And, and about eight months in, I, I remember going, oh, hang on, acting is just another activity as in being a father, being an actor, podcast host, whatever activity we have, there's actually something way deeper and more connecting between all of us. And I that was, when I was about 22, I guess, and I was initiated into meditation, I was like, I feel I have a practice now where I know I can return daily to that feeling I had stumbled upon in the outback. And you have kept it, as I understand. You still meditate every single day. Oh, yeah. Wow. Usually, definitely twice a day when I'm working. Sometimes when I'm not working, which seems odd, he seems to have more time, you know, the second one might get away from me. But uh, yeah, I've never, I've, I've always kept it. 
It's beautiful. I mean, for me, the day I meditate and the day I don't meditate is a night and day of difference, right? The day I meditate, I'm more zen, I'm more calm, I'm kinder to myself, to others. The day I don't meditate, it slips. (laughs) Life, you know, know, things get more irritating, things get to me faster. It's just, it's it's a different attitude. How about love? And I mean, there's so many definitions of love, right? I know mm-hmm. and love your wife, uh, Deborah Lee Furness, and your kids. If I am to ask you, what have you learned from love generally? And how do you see love as being? I see love as being um, the realization of, of connection, that we, in essence, all the same from the same stuff we we're connected so lack of love i would say would be separation a feeling of separation and love is is connectedness and you know sometimes in life life throws you just such an obvious (laughs) connection like i got with my wife when i met I, i she was a little unsure when we first met but i knew like every single cell in my body in my heart, my mind, everything was screaming, you're meant to be with this person for the rest of your life. And that, that was a great gift. I may have had that feeling in my life four or five times total. So well, if you get those, that's great. But regardless, I think it's such a great thing. I do think it's a, a grace in a way that you have those experiences. But our job as humans is to Go from that feeling to expand those circles out. So naturally for your children, for your wife, for your parents, for your brothers and sisters, there's there's just a natural feeling of love, even when they're annoying, it's there. And our, But the real work is about expanding that and seeing you saying they have your friends or the horses you care for or whatever it is, the, the guy over there at the crosswalk, that actually it's the same thing. We, we label it in different ways, but that love can exist. So I try, when I'm meditating and when I have space, I can feel that love. It takes space. You have to be able to breathe, look in someone's eye, take a second, meet people as though you've never met them before, including your partner. Be present. Just look at them. And then you experience love. It's not an intellectual thing. You just feel it. I love this. Love is about <laughs> connection, really. I once heard Chris, uh, Christine uh, Lagarde, who was the head of the IMF, you know, she said, we need more love in the world. We need, and I, she said, I'm not only talking about romantic love, I'm talking about love between us as individuals, between us in the meeting rooms, between co-workers, between nations, between, we need just more love. And when one sees love as connection, you almost take it to the second, you explain what does that love mean? connection yeah you know so then it's possible to have it in the meeting rooms and between nations and between you know beyond the romantic and with the parental love you know i was thinking just yesterday i was thinking about the two commandments from jesus there were always the ten commandments but one of the two so he said there's two things to live by love the lord your god which means i i interpret as be constantly aware of your true self with a capital S, which is connected to everyone. Be aware of that. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor, where does neighbor stop? It's not just the person on the other side of the fence or the other side of the country. or the other side. It's every single person and animal, every living thing. Like 
love them as you would love yourself. And I think a lot of the problems we have, it's simple, but powerful. And a lot of the problems we have would be solved if we did that. And you are a father to two kids, beautiful kids. What do you tell them about the meaning of success? You know, how, what, how do you convey that to them so they can live their life from a place of fulfillment? I, I tell them that uh, I actually just not too recently shared with them uh, my favorite line from one of my favorite movies, which is Chariots of Fire. And the runner from Scotland, for those who don't know, um, is very religious, wouldn't made a big deal of not running in his event because it was on a Sunday and it was a huge uproar at the time. But anyway, he before he went to the Olympics, he had plans after the Olympics to go and be do missionary work in China, I think. And so he's going for a walk with his sister and his sister just says to him, turns and says, what's this? You're not really thinking of running. It's silly. What is this silly running business? Like we have God's work to do. We need to go out there. We need to get those Bibles to China. We need to start now. Why are we waiting? And he looks and he just looks at his sister and he says, I feel God's pleasure when I run. And it actually always makes me cry even saying the line. And I said, that's when you know you're doing the right thing. And it literally does not matter what anybody else thinks, how the world puts it as on the successful or pyramid. It, none of that matters. We all know that feeling within where you go, there's something deep within me that comes alive when I run. So Joseph Campbell called it Follow Your Bliss. There's been many versions of it. It's written in mythology, that, that feeling of a song within that, that drives you. So I say to my kids, whether you believe in God or not, you know what that line means. I feel something come alive inside. And I said, just listen for that. It'll come. It comes to everybody. At some point, you ask anybody, they'll have a feeling whether they ignore it or not. And it happened to me. When I was 14, I told him my father was converted by Billy Graham. He was so very evangelical, sort of Christian. And so we would go to revivals. And I remember we went to one and there was always a lot of energy, usually rock groups, Christian rock, that kind of thing, people getting converted. And I went one night and I remember 14 having this 100% knowledge that I was going to be on stage, that I, what I was looking at. And so actually, for two or three years, I thought I was going to be a minister. I just assumed that feeling was, I'm going to do that. Of course, now as a 53-year-old, I can go, no, I'm. it's all a, somehow a sacred religious experience theater, right? Storytelling, life. <laughs> so I, I have ended up being on stage. Now, my idea at the time was, oh, I'm going to be a minister in the church. But it was just, I was going to somehow be a channel up there. I just knew that was going to happen. So I do tell my kids that thing that now when they're young, that siren song comes to you and a, a lot of us miss it. We say, well, I can't do that. I, I can't actually be a video game creator. No, that's just fun. I can't do botany. That's silly. I can't be a horse rider. No, that's silly. You know, because society says we've got to be X, Y, Z. So that's what 
long-winded answer sorry that is so beautiful no you know what can i tell you when i was in iraq my arabic is my native language okay my eyes spoke English as a child, but second language, I used to give speeches in front of the mirror in my bedroom in English. Why would I, a 16-year-old kid in Iraq, would give speeches in English where all my education was in Arabic? I have no idea. And guess what I do now? I give lots of speeches <laughs> in English, you know. <laughs> but, you know, so that it's is so the funny. choice. But that's sort of hearing that and following the pulse of your heart is almost like follow it, you know, keep following it. I love that. It. The pulse of your heart. Yeah, you know? Actually, I'm going to tell them that because I think when I told my daughter in particular, you know, that line, she goes, well, I'm not sure I believe in God. I went, yeah, and it's not really about God is that, okay, so I'm going to follow, follow the pulse of your heart. Follow the pulse of your heart because I, I really believe that heart, the heart has a language and has awareness and we just, when we meditate or when we go to earth, we just, you know, what you're talking about, the bliss is to listen to our heart, you know, just like when we become in alignment. I mean, that's at least mm. my belief. L let me ask you, now you meditate, you obviously exercise, you do manifestation exercise. And you do, I mean, you're a renaissance man, honestly, in so many ways. You read, thank you for all the recommendations of books you, uh, you recommended for me. I loved and swallowed each one of them. How <laughs> do you take care of yourself personally, like an intimate act of care that you give for yourself? The meditation is key to that. That's a feeling of coming home back to your true self, where I can actually drop even the label Hugh Jackman or the father, the actor, the, the husband, the, the son, or the brother, the sister, just all that can go. And then that builds a, a like a well of fine energy. It feels like drawing back the bow. That's the best way. But, you know, I've, I've learned over the years the things that work for me and, and I, I know at times I'm really busy and I have a lot of demand so if i don't meditate i won't be able to fulfill them if i drink too much i won't actually be i know drinking is not great for me not that i get hung over but i get a little negative and a little sad so and to keep learning not get arrogant to think oh, i've got it i've learned everything so i still have an acting coach and i still have a singing in fact after this i'm doing a singing lesson and keep reading and being open and in the end the beauty of being an actor is you're learning all the time that's you know my acting teacher on day one said to me he goes the next you you all here can act there was 18 of us you can all act the next three years are about the other 90 percent of the time because you're actually here to learn how to learn so i think that state of curiosity is important and feels natural to me but and i think that all of that stuff helps me eating well helps me if i don't i actually just start to feel negative I jump in the ocean every time I'm down here, whether I want to or not, even this morning, but I didn't really feel like it. And it, I just know those things will help me feel better. So there is a knowing and there's a discipline of doing it, you know, like the knowing that yeah. the, if I do this, I'm, I feel better. But then sometimes you don't want to jump into the cold ocean and you do it anyway. Yeah, because that discipline gives you some freedom in the end. And I do have to be careful. My wife is a great antidote. I can be a little... And my father, like, this is the Jew. This is what you meant to do. You said you're going to do that. Said you're going to do this. I have to, like, it's okay. It's all right. You know, I get in my, and Deb catches me all the time. Like, we'll be driving back on a Sunday and we'll say, well, let's leave about 12 o'clock. And about 1130, I'm like, I'm, I'm be leaving at 12. And she goes, and she goes, well, about that. And I'm saying, but come on, we've got to, uh, and then she goes, 
we said 12, but it could have been 12.30. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's okay. Like, <laughs> I have a question for you. I, I was re-watching The Limes uh, the other day, and the character you play, Jean Valjean, kept on asking, who am I? It really mm. resonated with me because I kept, I was asking myself, who am I for years, mm. you know, and honestly, until recently that I was meditating for a long time and I, I'm like this question, who am I stays with me all the time. So I kept on. And then I get a line in my meditation. I, this is, you know, sometimes when just wisdom just drops to you in your, when your brain is not thinking mm. and I hear, I am, how dare mm. you? Ask, who am I? I am. So my question for you, who are you? You just gave the answer. Because we can spend so many hours constructing a really compelling, interesting, funny, hopefully, <laughs> intelligent sort of cover, creating an adaptive self. We can do that in, for whatever reason. And... I think what I'm realizing as I get older is you don't need any of that. We just, we just are. And I feel that in when I'm in the outback, when I'm 18, I feel that when I meditate, I feel that when I'm talking with friends, like I don't, there's no, but sometimes I feel the need to, Oh, I, I better be a little more. I oh, know you're the lead of that musical. If we start rehearsals tomorrow, okay, no, you've got to go in. The other, it's okay. Just go in and be an actor and here we go. Let's join together. So literally that I am is everything that I started to learn when I was like 2021. 20, and that, yeah, that I think is the first commandment actually that Jesus said of his two. It's realizing love the God with all your heart. That's like realize yourself, self-realization. I am. And then. Love your neighbors yourself. That's all we need. Oh, can I tell you? I really believe that all what God wants out of us. I mean, and I love God. I just and I God for me is everything. It doesn't matter what God is. Everything is all what God wants out of us is to fulfill our full potential. That's it. That's it. You know, fulfill yeah. our, you know, whatever it is, be a driver or an actor or an author. It doesn't matter. Just fulfill your full potential. I know True. you have to go for the class. I have one last question. Hmm. What transformation for yourself, for your family, and for society do you hope to do you hope are ahead? I really hope that we can broaden our thinking to encompass the whole. I mean, the planet, the universe beyond. I, 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 I hope that our political systems, I hope our economic systems, I hope everything that we've built up can very quickly, become the whole because th there's no way we're going to solve all these big issues. So Deb, my wife said this, she said, I, the other day, she said, I really think we should just treat the whole world as family. And I went, yeah, it's not like, well, listen, we, uh, uh, we'll give vaccines to that country over there, but we've got to make sure everyone, we've got them first. Like, what's the point? If we're all sick, we won't be able to help them. I'm like, what if that was your family over there? And when we say all the time, you're only as happy as your unhappiest kid. But if we saw the whole world as family, we'd be more like Peter Singer and that, all that philosophy of how do we really embrace everybody and make sure that we look after everybody because it's within our power. There's no reason. It's just the way we manage it where there's more than enough of everything for everybody. That's, that's my big hope.
And that was Hugh Jackman. Starting next month, he will be starring as Professor Harold Hill in the Broadway revival of The Music Man. For transcripts and other resources from this episode, please go to www.findcenter.com slash redefine. You can follow Hugh on Instagram at the Hugh Jackman. You can follow Find Center on Instagram at find underscore center. And you can follow me at Zainab Selby. And please email me questions about this podcast and your own transformative moments at redefined at findcenter.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week for another conversation about life's turning points and lessons learned. My guest will be the renowned playwright, author, and activist V, formerly known as Eve Ensler. Redefined is produced by me, Zainab Selby, along with Rob Carso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Michelle Schweitzer, Neil Goldman, Carolyn Pincus, and Shara Johnston. Looking forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>